Good morning, my New Market Alliance family. So great to have you connected with us online today in the midst of our COVID-19 crisis. When Jonathan asked if I would preach this morning, it was actually still very early on in this crisis that the elders projected come back to church day was today. So I was pretty hopeful that that would be the case, that I don't have to preach to a camera, but that I was able to preach to you in seats today. But all that to say, I am so thankful that we still have the opportunity to gather together online in our digital world, and I'm excited to get to share the Word of God with you today. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, open with me to Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9, and I'll meet you there in a minute. Now, as many of you know, Brittany and I welcomed our first beautiful daughter into the world, Haven Frida Lee Robinson, about five weeks ago. So I'm still very new to this whole dad thing, uh, but I didn't, it didn't take me long to realize that I'm imperfect at it, and I've already had my own fair share of dad fails. But I'm so thankful that I get to figure this all out with my wife and with the grace of Jesus. Just as a lens into our current life, uh, we went to give Haven her first bath, and we weren't sure how warm the water should be. So naturally, as millennials do, we Googled it, and we found that the water should be about 32 degrees Celsius. So we get the water to 32, we put her in it, and instantly she starts screaming at us. We get her out, dry her off, calm her down, all better. A couple days later, we give her a second bath, 32 degrees again, and we get the same reaction, screaming bloody murder until we dried her off. So I decided maybe we should re-Google this just to make sure. Sure enough, we looked at the one stupid site that said it should be at 32 degrees, when in reality it should be between 37 and 38. Oops, it wasn't that she hated the water, it was that she hated us for sticking her little tush in the ice bath. But you'll be happy to know that we have since warmed up her baths and made it much more enjoyable for all of us. This morning we're going to be talking about relationships between children and parents and employee working relationships, and hopefully walking away being confident that you are loved and valued by a Heavenly Father that never has any dad fails like me. Let's read together. Starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. This passage begins with addressing children, but I'm actually going to jump down to verse 4, and then we'll work our way back up. So let's read verse 4 again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, Bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. There's sort of three parts to this verse. There's the who, the fathers. There's the don't do these things, and there's the do these things. So Paul is addressing fathers here. The Greek word can be translated to mean parents, though when Paul wrote this, he really more than likely was intending for it to be to fathers. See, in Paul's time, fathers had legal control over their children, and were responsible for their instruction from about age seven onwards. Girls didn't typically receive formal education, but were instead taught household duties. The fact that Paul wrote children instead of boys is significant. He is challenging the cultural norms and removing the limitations put on girls in this ancient society. That's actually a common theme that we're going to see throughout this passage, that the gospel should change us in such a way that we act and live as believers should be so countercultural to the world around us. But going back to the fathers, in this day again, back then, 
they had ultimate control over their children. Their powers were almost unlimited in the Greco-Roman world. Fathers determined if a newborn baby had the right to live or die, with many baby girls in particular being abandoned to die. Fathers could and often did sell their children into slavery, again, especially the girls, and they could punish them as harshly as they pleased, work them hard, or even put them to death. Now, if you're like me, I look at my daughter Haven, and I could never imagine doing those things, abandon her to die, sell her into slavery, beat her, kill her if the situation arose. These attitudes and actions seem absolutely unthinkable and despicable to us. Yet, even in our day, children are subject to constant abuse, anger, violence, hostile homes, sexual abuse. We would never dream of putting our newborn to death, but a few months earlier while still in the womb, it's not out of the question. Or a lifetime of resentment and for all intents and purposes, putting that relationship to death, not out of the question. We would never dream of selling our daughters into slavery, yet our society is engorged with grotesque sexuality and pornography that fuels human trafficking, the slavery of our day. So while we're seemingly way farther along than those first century attitudes, when we truly look at it, our society, we see that we're not all that different. We're just less overt about the way that we treat our children. So when Paul begins verse 4 with fathers, that is the prevailing context for what a father is in the day he wrote this. But I think we need to take a step back and really recognize the weight of being a father. Do you realize that Father is one of the few names that we share with God? I bet you nobody calls you Yahweh or Lord or Christ or Messiah. Sharing the name Father with God is a weighty thing. How many people do you know that have trouble believing that God is good or that God is loving or that God is for them because they have a really crappy earthly father? Brother, sister, uncle, even mother, they don't seem to carry the same weight of father. The hurts from a father seem to carry so much deeper and impact the way that we see God far more than any other relationship. Why is that? Because dad's relationship with their children were uniquely designed to be an image of God's relationship with you. And so when that relationship is filled with anger and hurt and abuse and so on, it damages the lens through which our children view God. Man, that's why it's weighty. We are given the name Father. When we are given the name Father, I believe we are uniquely called to love our children in the way that our Heavenly Father has loved us. That we represent the love of our Heavenly Father to those who call us Father on earth. Now before I continue, I want to acknowledge that I know that there are single mothers, divorced parents, widows, and other home environments that aren't mom and dad. I believe that where the ideals are lacking, grace abounds. While I do believe that there's a unique dynamic between father and children that reflect our Heavenly Father, single moms, widows, you need to hear me. Where dad is not present or disinterested or has abandoned, know that Jesus meets you there in a very real way. Even homes where mom and dad are both present, but mom is clearly the spiritual leader, with dad being unbelieving or apathetic towards his faith. It's not like Jesus is like, well, your kids have no daddy, so now there's no hope in raising them. They're all going to be screw-ups. That's not how it works. Jesus is very present in your personal situation, and he makes all things new. 
all throughout scripture, there seems to be a special place in God's heart for the prayers of mothers. He hears, he responds, and he meets you there, and he is always merciful and gracious. So don't lose heart. I also want to appeal to us that Paul was writing to a specific people in a specific time. If he were writing this letter today in our context, I am pretty confident that he would be writing to parents, not fathers. So from here on out, I'm going to be using parents and fathers interchangeably. If you hear father, remember, we're moving this passage into our context and assuming parents, okay? So jumping back into our passage, I believe that as parents, we are uniquely called to love our children the way that our Heavenly Father has loved us that we represent the love of our Heavenly Father to those who call us mother or father on earth. You may be asking, okay, but how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. Paul continues on. Fathers or parents, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And then Paul gives a similar command in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The word there means hopeless. I bet if I had a Zoom chat with all you parents out there, none of you would say, yeah, what I really want from my kids is anger and hopelessness. No parent I know wants that. That is not our vision or our hope for our children's lives. Now, I hope you don't hear me saying that this is some sort of equation to produce a perfect kid. I'm not saying, I'm also not saying the other way that all of your children's future rebellion is on you. What Paul is saying is that there is a kind of anger and hopelessness that can result from mom's or dad's presence in your life, and we should try to avoid that. Let me illustrate it like this. The picture that Paul is going to outline in the second half of this verse is a parent with open hands. He's an open-handed father whose hands are open to his children. He's giving instruction and love and play and safety, ultimately because God has filled his hands to give those things. So what produces anger and hopelessness in a home? It's a parent whose hands aren't opened. That parent is either heavy-handed or hands-off, but not hands-open. A heavy-handed parent doesn't lead the home. They control the home. A heavy-handed dad doesn't represent God in the home. He's trying to be God in the home. He withholds love to get what he wants. He yells, he curses, he changes the rules because what he really wants is to be worshipped. And he can never get the worship because the worship he wants is a worship that he doesn't deserve. He is not safe. He either doesn't know the love of the Heavenly Father or he has rejected it. His kids feel small and scared and never know what will make dad mad or please him. His kids will find ways to cope in hiding. See, they can't talk about their pain because honesty requires safety, and dad has replaced safety in the home with turmoil. Where is their dad leading them? To anger and hopelessness. If dad is not tender and loving and hopeful, then how could God be any of those things? Or maybe it's not a heavy-handed dad, but it's a hands-off dad. Hands-off dads don't lead the home. They neglect the home. They don't represent God. He worships something else as God. He worships work or comfort or status. And then 
what he does is compartmentalize the responsibilities in the home. I provide the money. Mom keeps them fed. School keeps them smart. Netflix and TikTok keep them entertained. Church keeps them moral. Sports keep them active. And dad, well, he keeps all his emotions and energy and affection to himself, or he gives it away to something else. Where they need me, I will allow something or someone else to serve as a substitute for me. And he does not know the love of the Heavenly Father, or he has found a love that asks less of him than the love of the Heavenly Father. His kids feel used, neglected, unseen, unheard, and insecure. Attention and affection are something I have to earn, so I will adapt and perform to get the love that I simply should have come to me because I'm a child. Where's dad leading them? To anger and hopelessness. If dad is disinterested in me, how could God possibly find me lovable? The irony in all this is that the heavy-handed dad never gets the control he's after, and the hands-off dad never gets the comfort he's after. And God wants to free us from both of those. He wants to protect us and our children from both. He says, be hands open. Hands open parents lead the home. God is their God, and they are not perfect, but their heavenly father is. So mom is safe, and, and dad apologizes a lot. His kids know him. They trust her, and they both know and walk in the love of the Heavenly Father. I believe there are few better opportunities that have the power to point our children towards God than when we actually blow it the most. See, I hope I have the humility to go to Haven and apologize for losing my cool when I say things I shouldn't have said and explain how even Dad messes up. But our God in Heaven, He never messes up. He never loses his cool. He never says things he shouldn't say. He never loses his patience for you. See, that is open-handedness. That even in my failures, he can use me in my daughter's life to reveal who he truly is. So Paul is calling us to be hands open in the home. And then he tells us what that means. He says, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Bring them up doesn't really do justice to the weight of what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, feed them, nurture them. Bring them up means that you are engaged in every part of your child's life. You're not compartmentalizing the parts that you feel responsible for and are easy or are easy to feel responsible for. Bring them up means that we are leading them towards Jesus holistically. It's the same idea back in chapter 5 where he says, Husbands, nourish and cherish your wife as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. He's saying, use your open hands and wrap them around your child in such a way to shape them and guide them. All of them. He's giving us an authority over the whole life of our child to exercise that authority for their good. What he's really saying is that ultimately there is no part of raising your kids that you will not be accountable to God for. At the end of the day, it's not the church's responsibility to point them to Jesus. It's your responsibility. Discipleship, first and foremost, happens in the home. And then Paul continues on with the how. He says, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So what does that look like? 
Well, the second half of chapter five and continuing through to this passage is really the application of the previous chapters that we've been walking through for many weeks now. It's that we are called to live the first part of Ephesians out in relationships with our spouses and our children and parents. So when Paul says to bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord, we need to look back into chapters four and five to fully understand what that looks like. A summary would be something like this. We need to raise them up in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in unity, in tolerant love, to use their words to build up and not to tear down, to raise them up in wisdom, in forgiveness, in thankful hearts, and in walking in mutual submission. Again, I'm only five weeks into this parenting thing, and that list already looks daunting to me. I haven't even hit the terrible twos or the puberty years yet. So rather than give you a 10-point list of how to discipline and instruct your child in the Lord, I'm just going to try and make it really simple. The discipline and instruction in the Lord is less about words and so much more about how you live out your own life. Way too many of us, including Christians, have two persona. We have a public persona and a private persona. We appear like we've got this list all figured out in public. We're warm, we're gentle, and respectful people in public. But then all too often, we're actually the worst version of ourselves when we're at home with our spouse and our kids. Our call as Christians is to be consistent, whether we're at work or at home, whether we're on the sports field, hanging out with the guys, hanging out with the girls, or we're at church. Your kids are watching you, and they aren't stupid. They can tell when you're living a duplicitous life, when you're faking it in public. And whether they know it or not, what they most want to know when they watch you is what does dad and mom love most? What do they love most? And they look for that answer in two places. I'm going to find out what mom and dad loves by seeing what excites them and seeing what breaks them. What you say will tell them what you know, but what you do will teach them to love what you love. One commentator said it like this, there are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all of our coldness to Christ and all of our enthusiasm to the world? Our children see what gets our enthusiasm and what gets our coldness. So when they see you excited about the game and indifferent about worship and the Lord, that says something to them. When they see you excited about movies or celebrities or getting more stuff and broken over all the bills, that says something about you. But when they see you excited in the Lord and broken over your sin, that says something to them. There is something powerful when your kids watch you digging through scripture in the morning, when they watch you sing loudly and confidently to the Lord, when they pray with you. There is something powerful when the word of God comes from your lips to your children's life. Not just when they've done something wrong or they're going to think that the Bible only applies to them when they're in trouble. So speak the word over your children. It has incredible power. 
When they need encouragement, give them something like Romans 8. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demon, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will we'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or when they're struggling with their identity, give them 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Or when they're insecure about themselves, give them Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Or when they're worried about the future, give them Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The word of the Lord carries so much power. Speak it over your children's life. This whole section begins back in the middle of chapter 5 with, do not be drunk of wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We will never be able to do this well without the power of the Holy Spirit. If we are filled with the Spirit, we will give to our children out of an overflow of what we have received from God. The grace, the mercy, the forgiveness. See, our kids don't need us to be Jesus, they need us to need Jesus. I'll say that again. Our kids don't need us to be Jesus, they need us to need Jesus. There's no greater way to discipline and instruct your children than by letting them see your weaknesses and shortcomings and need for Jesus and letting them see your love and relationship with Jesus. All right, then if we jump back to verses one to three, we see Paul's command to children. He says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. Some translations say as children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And this gets some people saying, well, I only have to obey my parents if they're Christians, but that's not actually the intent. As we just said, this version says, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, which is a more accurate representation of what Paul was trying to say. See, obedience to our parents isn't supposed to be conditional on whether they love Jesus or not. Obedience to our parents is based on God's perfect design of the family unit and for the sake of seeking unity in the family and mutual submission. Obviously, this passage leans towards the ideal family, but I know that's not all of our realities. See, the less integrity a parent has, the more difficult it can feel to honor them. First, First Peter 3, verse 1 says, In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over. I know this passage is speaking to wives, but the principle remains the same. Children, there is power in your obedience and honor to your parents. If you have parents that are dishonorable or unloving or whatever your situation holds, when you obey and honor them, it will speak volumes to them. Over time, it will probably become very difficult for your parent to continue to treat you in that way when you are constantly loving and honoring them back, even when they don't deserve it. You may even be the catalyst 
for what leads them back to relationship with Jesus. Kids, don't underestimate the power your obedience and honor has in the lives of your parents, both with amazing loving parents and crappy dishonorable parents. I do need to create this caveat though, that this doesn't mean blind obedience. If your parents ask you to do something illegal, immoral, or against God's will, you should not blindly do it. Obedience to your parents should never lead you to disobedience to Christ. Acts 5.29 says, we must obey God rather than man. Now I have two great parents who love me and my siblings and love the Lord, so it's hard for me to fully be able to relate to children in less than ideal situations. If the family life is functioning as it's designed to, parents should be loving their children like Jesus loves them, nurturing and cherishing them and raising them with discipline and instruction in the Lord, as we've already talked about. And then the children are asked to give back to their parents what their parents gave them, respect and love within the framework of their commitment to Christ. Remember that list from earlier? Humility, gentleness, wisdom, tolerant love, thankfulness, etc. In ideal family units, both parents would be leading in these things, and the children would be responding back with the same things to their parents through obedience and honor to their parents. But kids, just between you and me, even with the greatest parents in the world, there will be times that you disagree or you feel like they're old and they don't get it or they're being fair, unfair. Trust me, I get it. I've been there. In those moments, I want to remind you of the start of the passage. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. See, kids, if you love Jesus, you're accountable to him in the way that you obey and honor your parents. Even when you don't like what they're asking or you don't agree, Jesus is asking you to respond to them in the same way that you would if Jesus was your parent. It won't be easy but it will be the best thing for you, for your parents, and for the watching world around you. Then finally, Paul shifts his focus to slaves and masters. Now, before you grab the remote and you turn off the TV, and you think Christians are some sort of sick people who believe that slavery is right, just stay with me for a few minutes while I read the next part of the passage and try and pull it all together. This is down in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. The idea of slavery is foreign to us in our day. When we think of slavery, we picture the 19th century slavery in the United States, which understandably makes it hard for us to understand why Paul didn't just call for slavery to be abolished in this passage. So if we can, put our 19th century picture of slavery on the shelf for a minute, and let's take a look at what actually was going on in Paul's day. 
See, in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was so much a part of life that nobody ever really thought that it might be wrong or should be illegal. It was considered an economic and practical need in that day. As many as one-third of the people living in Greece and Rome were slaves. People would become slaves through a variety of ways. Birth, parents selling or abandoning their child, captivity in war, inability to pay debts, even people voluntarily becoming a slave to better one's condition, and race was not a factor. Slaves didn't just do the grunt work, but in many cases they held high positions, overseeing and managing most professions. Many slaves were actually more educated than their owners. They were able to own property, they could own other slaves, and they were allowed to save up their own money to buy their freedom, many gaining freedom by their 30s. There were laws that attempted to prevent gross abuse of slaves, though the owners did have free reign to treat the slaves as they wished. Some were loved and treated as family, while others were treated cruelly and could be tortured and killed if the owners pleased. Now, I need to say two more points about this before we dig in to the meaning of this section. Firstly, we need to understand that in writing to masters and slaves, Paul is by no means encouraging or condoning this practice. As I already said, slavery was so woven through the fabric of their day that it was just the reality. Nobody really thought of another way. So Paul is not there encouraging his readers to take slaves from themselves, but rather, in light of slavery being a normal part of their everyday life and functioning of society, he was addressing how each party should treat each other. Secondly, the Christians in the early church, as they lived out and presented life in Christ, they actually were responsible for putting into motion a process that would eventually destroy slavery. We'll see shortly that the way Paul calls slaves and masters to interact alone should have abolished slavery for Christians. We have to remember that Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus in a specific time. If Paul were writing this today, in our context, it would probably read more like, employees, obey your employers with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you serve Christ. And then jumping down, employers, treat your employees in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. See, Paul is really just trying to address the working relationship between bosses and their workers. Paul's saying, employee, respect your boss, work hard, always do your best for them. Slaves were notorious for being lazy and liars in that day. But Paul's saying, nope, not anymore. When they're in the room, when they're in the other room, they're gone for the afternoon, whether they're on vacation, you should work just as hard on those days as you would if they were standing right beside you looking over their shoulder. Why should we do that? Because we are working for our bosses as if Jesus was our boss. The masters or the employers will be feeling pretty good right now. Paul just kind of upped the expectation for slaves in that day. But then he goes and flips it on the masters. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. Whoa, 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 Paul, man. I think you got something backwards here. You want me, this slave's master, to treat my slave the way that they treat me? You're saying I should respect and fear my slaves with the sincerity of heart as to Christ? No, no, no. 
They're supposed to respect and fear me and serve me with a sincere heart. But just as slaves were being called to give up slacking off, masters were being called to give up threatening because that doesn't line up with serving Christ. Like the parents and children section, this section on masters and slaves is another relational application of chapters four and five. Which means that really what Paul is calling both the slave and the master to is, let's go back to that list, to treat each other with humility, with gentleness, with patience, to have unity, to have tolerant love, to use their words to build up, not to tear down, to seek wisdom and forgiveness, to have thankful hearts and to walk in mutual submission. And that's why I said it earlier, that when Paul called masters to interact with their slaves in this manner, it would actually lead to the demise of slavery. See, I don't know about you, but I can't threaten and beat and abuse or kill someone while walking in humility and gentleness and patience and unity and tolerant love and mutual submission. You see what I'm saying? No, Paul did not directly command that slavery be no more. Though I would argue he actually did an even better thing. He went to the heart of the matter. He moved beyond just the golden rule of treating others the way that you want to be treated. He raised the bar again to treat others the way that you would treat Jesus. Then Paul sort of summarizes the section by saying, remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. There is no favoritism with Jesus. In our society, we live by this sort of hierarchy that declares our relative value and the value of others. We may not have slaves, but we have service people and people lower on the totem pole that we don't deem count or don't deserve the respect like someone of higher value. It's easy to dehumanize and chew them out when we aren't satisfied. Our attitudes, our body language, our lack of attention communicate that we really don't care about you. But friends, I want to challenge us all. Our witness as followers of Christ depend on how we treat everybody not just the stars and the celebrities and our bosses or the pretty people or the successful business people, but also the cashiers and the waiters and the garbage men and the homeless and the marginalized. The reality of living life with Christ means that we must relate to everyone as if we were relating to Jesus himself. Now, as I wrap up, I just want to point to two beautiful truths. I hope at the end of all this, what you're hearing is that you are valued, no matter where you find yourself. That whether you're a parent or a child, you're valued. Whether you're a master or slave, an employer or an employee, you are valued. The entire point of this passage today is to break down cultural norms, to break down the abuse of power and dishonor and laziness and anger and dehumanization of one another, and to look to Jesus. Jesus cares about how you treat your kids, because kids, you are valued. Jesus cares about how you treat your parents, because parents, you are valued. Jesus cares about how you treat your boss, because bosses, you are valued. Jesus cares about how you treat your employees because employees, you are valued. There is no favoritism in the Lord. You are all loved and valued exactly the same. All it takes is to look back 
to last weekend, to look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, to see that you are so unbelievably valued by Jesus Christ, so valued that he literally laid down his life so that you could truly live yours. I guarantee you that if you treat your children like you would treat Jesus, it'll change your relationship. And if you treat your parents the way that you would treat Jesus, it'll change your household. If you interact with your boss the way you would interact with Jesus, it'll change your relationship. If you interact with your employee the way that you would interact with Jesus, it'll change your workplace. Like Matthew 25, where Jesus says, when you fed them and you gave them a drink and you invited them in and you clothed them and you visited them, whatever you did for the least of these, you have done for me. And then he flips it. And he says, whatever you have not done for the least of these, you have not done for me. If we take seriously that Jesus is the origin and the recipient of every act, every single thing we do, then all of our work, how we treat people, the way we interact with people, it changes. Our work will be done with care, not just to get by or to get the job done to minimum standards. And the people around us won't be used or ignored, but they'll be nurtured and cared for and cherished. Jesus changes everything. So take a look in the mirror today. What do you see? Do you see an angry, heavy-handed, or hands-off parent? Do you see a dishonoring, disrespectful, disobedient child? Do you see a lazy, lying worker? Do you see a harsh, threatening, disrespectful boss? If any of those are you, I want to invite you into a better story. If you let him, Jesus will infiltrate every area of your life, in your heart, and he'll get to work. And over time, you'll look back at that mirror and you'll start to see more of Jesus and less of you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you care so deeply about each and every one of us. You are not absent from any situation. You care about our relationships with our kids and our parents, and you care about our relationships with our bosses and our employees. You care so much that you don't want to leave us in our broken, messed up versions of these relationships but you want to call us to a higher standard, that no matter who is on the receiving end, that every interaction, the way we work, the way we treat people, everything we do, it would be as if we were doing it for you. Every conversation would be as if we were having with you. Every relationship would be as if it was with you. Because you value each and every one of us beyond understanding that there is no favoritism with you. And I pray that if anyone listening today looks in the mirror and sees an ugly version of themselves, angry, dishonorable, lazy, harsh, disrespectful, heavy-handed, that Jesus, that you would begin to transform them day by day to look and act more like you. That we'd look back in that mirror in a month or a year or a decade and we'd see a different person, a parent or a child, a boss or an employee who is loving and honoring everyone that we interact with like we would if it was you. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.